Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Today's passage is kind of like the Super Bowl of Old Testament passages, and I'll do my best not to kick the opening kickoff out of bounds, but this is what some theologians have said about the passage we're covering today, that it is the climax of David's life, that is the foundation for a major theme in the writings of the later prophets the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel story, the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament, and even arguably the single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. In today's passage, the God of the universe, the God who created and sustains all things, speaks. He speaks to man. Here we have the longest recorded message from God since the time of Moses. And in it, God establishes what David later calls a covenant. We call it the Davidic covenant. Now, you may ask, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a promise made by two or more parties with certain stipulations attached to it. For example, around our house, we're actually grandfathered out of this, but around our house, there is a neighborhood covenant in which residents and uh, residents uh, promise to pay a certain fee every year while the neighborhood association promises to mow the common grounds. In addition, uh, the residents uh, promise to one another that they will put their trash can inside their garage at night, that they will not build a shed that is visible from the road, and that they will not put up any fences. This is a neighborhood covenant. I think many of you moved to Swamica to escape neighborhood covenants, and so you could burn your own trash. I'm pretty sure that's why most of the people moved to Swamica. But this is a neighborhood covenant. Maybe a covenant you are more familiar with is the marriage covenant, in which two people promise themselves to one another and make certain promises about the, the covenant that they're entering into. What is amazing about today's passage is that this is not a covenant between two mortal people, but God himself, by his grace, has chosen to enter into a covenant with man. And the reason why this is so amazing is because God needs us for nothing and he owes us nothing. On the other end, we owe God everything and we need him for everything. And so God, by his grace, has chosen to come and make a covenant with David, with the people of God, with his descendants, and even as we will see today with you and me. In this covenant, God promises wonderful things. Again, not only to David, but to the church today, to the people of God. So if you would please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 259. 2 Samuel chapter 7. For those of you who are maybe just coming in, uh, David has finally become king of United Israel after waiting uh, 
decades for that. And as he has become king, the Lord has given him great victory, uh, warding off their enemies who have attacked them. Uh, he's established a capital in Jerusalem, and he has, for, he has built for him a lavish house of cedar that comes into play in today's passage. Last week, uh, Ron uh, preached and did a great job talking about how David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem uh, with rejoicing and great delight because it was where the special presence of God is, uh, was in this world. And so all is well in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, all is very well in Jerusalem. And as a result, uh, David is seeking to give back to the Lord. And that's where we pick up the passage. Uh, we're going to go ahead and read the entire uh, passage today, verses 1 through 17. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fill, fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall, to be, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let me ask you a question. Why do we have to make promises to people? Why do our kids say, Dad, do you promise? Why do we sign contracts? Why do we enter into covenants? 
Well, it's because we're not very trustworthy people. That's why. (laughs) We have to get it down in writing. We need your signature so that we know, so we can hold you to this because what you tell me, you may not be faithful to do. And so the question is, why does God enter into a covenant? Is it because we're not quite sure if God will be faithful to his promises? Has God been unfaithful to his promises in the past? You see, this is a very important question for us. You know, as you think of that day when you're, when you're laying there on your deathbed, taking your last gasp of breath, to know whether or not God is faithful to his promises is very important. Because God has promised to us to never leave us or forsake us and to bring us into his glory with him for all eternity. And so this is a very pressing, important question to us. Is God faithful to his promises? Is God faithful to his covenant? As we consider that question, we want to look at this Davidic covenant. And there are three aspects of the Davidic covenant that we want to really meditate on today that are important for us understanding God's faithfulness to his promises. And the first is this, the covenant, the Davidic covenant is a gift of grace. Look with me at verse one again, verse one through three. It says, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. God has been very good to David. God has been very good to Israel. God has defended them from all of the armies that have attacked them. God has given them rest. He has given them peace. God has given them a city. God has given David a house of cedar. David recognizes all this as a gift from God. And he says, look, I live in luxury. I live in a house of cedar. But God, God, the ark of God, it dwells in a tent. David is struck by the discrepancy that he, a mere mortal, lives in extravagance while the special presence of God lives in an old, beaten up, worn out tent. Now, David does not say this out loud, but I think it's assumed and we figure this out later. David is suggesting to Nathan the prophet that he build a house for the Lord, that he build a permanent temple, something nicer than David's house of cedar. And so Nathan the prophet, without consulting the Lord, which is important, but David the prophet says to David, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. This seems to be a no-brainer to David, a no-brainer to Nathan. It seems like a no-brainer to us. God has blessed them so richly. Now it is time for them to build a house for the Lord. But then Nathan gets it wrong. And so the Lord comes to Nathan, verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, probably in a dream. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you... Build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, what God is saying is that he has never asked 
for the people of God to build him a temple because the most important feature of where God dwells is not how big it is or how glorious it is, but who it is with. God has been good with a tent because God wanted to be with his people wherever they went. This is how much God loves his people, that he is willing to live in a tent just to be with them. You know, we have several grandparents that, that do this as well. We have at least four sets. I heard of a fifth set of grandparents in our congregation who have moved to Green Bay simply to be with their grandkids. They have left places that they have lived in for their whole lives, 50 plus years, to come and move to Green Bay. They have left their dream houses that they have built to come and live in rental properties just to be with their grandkids. They care nothing about their children, just their grandkids. And by the way, their grandkids are better than your grandkids. They have the pictures to prove it. But they come. They don't care so much about what they dwell in, but who they dwell with. They want to dwell with their grandkids. This is just a small picture of how much God loves his people. He says, I am willing to live in a tent in your backyard instead of a temple on a hill because I want to be with you. And so God was with them through the exodus out of Egypt and through the time of the judges in a tent because what was most valuable for him was to be with his people. Now, what is interesting is that David's son Solomon will build the Lord a temple, and it will be glorious. But right here, right now, the Lord wants to make clear to David and Nathan and the people of God that what is most important to him is to dwell with them. Now, as we move on to verse 8 and 9, God is going to tell Nathan uh, to remind David to remind David of, of how God has acted towards him, how God has been gracious to him and cared for him. That David's relationship with the Lord is really one directional, monergistic, and it is one of radical grace. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, I took you from the pasture from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I took you from the lowest place in the kingdom to the highest place in the kingdom. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Why is God going to give David a great name? Why is David going to bless his descendants? It's not because David built a house for the Lord, but simply because of the generous, loving, overwhelming grace of God. You know, I often hear about people talk about the God of the Old Testament as if it is this mean, cranky old God that people are, are on hands and knees trying to get just a little morsel of bread from. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God is a God of extravagant grace. And this is mind-blowing to the nations that surrounded Israel of that day, much like it would be today. You see, what was customary for the nations of that time is once they would gain some success and they would gain some, some, uh, some treasure, what they would use is they would use that money to, to build a temple to their God. And they would do it for this reason. This is very important. The reason why they would build a temple to their God is to try and secure more divine blessing for them and for their nation. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, there was a pharaoh named Tutmos III. 
He reigned for more than 50 years, which is a very long time. And he had a very successful empire and expanded Egypt's borders uh, to its greatest extent. During his reign, Tutmos III decided to build a temple for one of his gods named Amun. After building it, the priests of Amun came to Tutmos III and said this, and you'll hear some familiar language. It says, since you have built my dwelling place and you have outstripped all other kings in building my monuments, now I will establish your throne on two distant days. Essentially, the leaders of the world were building temples to gods to try to purchase their favor. Now, I don't know if this was David's motivation, but the Lord wants to make it crystal clear, exceptionally clear, that he is not like the God of the nations. That the Lord God's favor towards David and towards the people is not earned by building him a temple, but it is a gift of complete grace. Now, you may wonder, what is grace? Well, grace is simply the unmerited favor of God or the unearned kindness of God. And this is how and why God has blessed his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Last century, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world uh, got together and they debated about the uniqueness of certain religions. And they were debating the uniqueness of Christianity. They were trying to figure out what is unique about Christianity compared to every other religion. And so they thought, man, is it the incarnation that God became a man? They're like, no, other religions, God's become men. Could it be the resurrection that someone was raised from the dead? They're like, no, there's other religions where someone is raised from the dead. And so they're debating what is unique about Christianity. At that moment, C.S. Lewis comes through the door and he's asking what the discussion is about. And they said, hey, we're trying to figure out what is unique about Christianity among all the other world religions. And C.S. Lewis responds, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is what's unique about Christianity. They all agreed. Grace is what's unique about Christianity. It's not what we do for God, but completely what God has done and does do for us. The notion of God's love and favor coming to us absolutely 100% free of charge is unheard of in every other religion, but it is the foundation of the Judeo-Christian faith. And that's why in Ephesians 2, After talking about the depravity of our souls, the apostle Paul hammers home the hope of grace when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And he makes sure we know it's not by works. He says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. A gift is free. You don't pay for a gift. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Friends, not only are we saved by grace, we are kept by grace, and we are blessed by grace. All of the good things we have are a gift of God's unmerited kindness. This is such good news because if we cannot merit God's love, then we cannot unmerit his love. He loves us simply because he loves us. We can never out God's love. Because of grace, God's love for you is unconditional and inexhaustible because all of it is a gift of grace. And so just to recap, God, God, before he really lays out the Davidic covenant, wants to make it crystal clear that the Davidic covenant that's about to come is, is not earned through David building him a temple, but it is a gift of generous grace, not only towards David, but towards the people of God then and the people of God today. Second thing we learn about the Davidic covenant, not only is it a gift of grace, but it is a pledge 
for peace. This is maybe the less popular part of the Davidic covenant, but still very important. Verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus say the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. God here makes an amazing promise. The people of God have been under attack for centuries, and he's saying there is coming a place and a time where that will be no more, where there will be complete shalom, complete tranquility, complete peace. This is, this is realized, this promise of peace is realized in part during David's reign, as we've read many times in this passage, and also during his son Solomon's reign. But it has a fuller fulfillment in the future. We talk about this during Christmas, an Old Testament passage that you're probably familiar with. is Isaiah chapter 9, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then there it is, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government... And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Jesus has brought us the most important peace of all, which is peace with God. But this is just an appetizer, just a foretaste of the total peace that awaits us in our heavenly home, the new Jerusalem. Jeremiah gives us, I'm sorry, Isaiah gives us a picture of this as well, of what that peace will look like in heaven when it says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Don't you long for that day of complete peace, complete tranquility, when there's no need for for instruments of battle, they can be turned into farm instruments. Don't you long for the day where, where kids no longer fight with one another, with family members, don't argue over things, where you don't have to put people in time out or, or have a talking with people? Don't you look for the day when you don't pull up the internet and you see news about a war in Ukraine? Don't you long for the day? Don't you long for the day where there are no more mass shootings? Because everything is at peace and there is complete tranquility, not only between man and God, but also between man and man. This is what God is promising to David. It is a radical peace, but it is only fulfilled in part during David's time and during Solomon's time and even during Jesus' time here on earth. You see, this prophecy of peace teaches us something critical about our understanding of Old Testament Prophecy, And this will be important for the passage that comes up next for later in this passage. But what it teaches us is, is this, and I'll say it twice because it's really important. Oftentimes, prophecy in the Bible 
has a partial fulfillment in the near future to give us confidence of a full fulfillment in the distant future. Let me say that again. Oftentimes, prophecy in the Bible has a partial fulfillment in the near future to give us confidence of its full fulfillment in the distant future. Let me illustrate this way. As I, as I said in the introduction, one of the most familiar covenants to us is a marriage covenant. And, and on the wedding day, which is the, the time that the covenant is taken, uh, certain vows are exchanged. And so the vows may go something like this. I choose you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse. So if everything goes great, we're together. If everything goes bad, we're together. For richer or for poorer. So if we live in a mansion or if we live in a tent like the God of the Old Testament. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live or till death do we part. And so what we see in that marriage covenant is that that covenant and those promises should be lived out in part day to day. As a husband and wife journey together, they're called to love and to cherish and to care for one another, be faithful to one another. But the covenant is not fulfilled until one of them dies. It's not complete until one of them dies. It is at that time that you can say, I was faithful to the covenant. In the same way, God is showing us that he is faithful to the future of the covenant, the certainty of him sticking around and staying with us by being faithful in these covenant promises, in part to David and to Solomon. Friends, God promises peace. Peace between us and God, but ultimately peace peace over all of humanity in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, just to recap, the Davidic covenant is a gift of grace, not given because of David's goodness or building of a temple. It is the unmerited favor of God. The Davidic covenant is a pledge for peace that is partially fulfilled in David's time and Solomon's time, even in our time, but will come in full when Christ returns. And finally, the Davidic covenant is a dedication to dynasty. This is probably the meat of the covenant uh, that you're most familiar with if you're familiar with the Davidic covenant. Verse 11, halfway through, it says this. Moreover, more grace, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, David already had a house. He had a house of cedar. And it will become very clear that the house that David wants to make for the Lord and the house that the Lord's going to make for David are two very different houses. The house David wanted to make was a temple. It was brick and mortar. It was a building. But God promises to build a house for David that is a dynasty, a Davidic dynasty, a, a lineage of royalty. Verse 12 continues. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. As we'll see, if you continue to read on in the life of David, Solomon, his son, becomes king over Israel. He reigns for 40 years, which is a very long time. He's a man of great wisdom. And for that reason, much of his reign is a time of prosperity and peace. And then verse 13 continues and says, He shall build a house for my name. Solomon would indeed build a temple for the Lord. David would gather all of the supplies, all of the plants, and then say, basically, when I die, hit the easy button, and the temple will be built. And that's what happens. The temple is built under Solomon. Now, up to this point in the Davidic prophecy, 
and the Davidic covenant, the dedication to a Davidic dynasty, it all seems to be able to be fulfilled by Solomon, his son. But as we move forward in this covenant, God makes a promise that goes beyond Solomon, a promise that goes beyond any mere mortal, a promise that vaults this covenant a whole nother level and makes it relevant to us today. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How long is forever? (laughs) Are we in forever? This is how this covenant applies to us is because it is a forever covenant. You know, Solomon reigned for 40 years, which is a nice long reign, but his reign did not last forever. It ended when he died. It was not an eternal kingdom. It was not a kingdom without end. And so, so God is saying, I'm going to give you a king, a descendant whose reign will be forever. But how will this come true? I mean, all men die. How could this happen? Well, remember what we said about the promise of peace, that that oftentimes God God promises have a partial fulfillment in the near future, which would be Solomon, to point us to the confidence we can have in its full fulfillment in its distant future. So this is the case in this passage. Solomon is a partial fulfillment of the promises here, and that's why it might even get confusing in the verses to come. But the full promise would come to fulfillment in a future son of David. And we get a hint of what this future son of David will be and and why this future son of David can live forever unlike man. Verse 14 says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Not only will this offspring be of David, but the offspring will be of God himself. This offspring will be fully man from the line of David, but also fully God as a son of God. The prophecy continues and it takes a bit of a turn. It says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Again, if you know the story of Solomon, you know that, that he does rebel against the Lord uh, repeatedly. Uh, Saul, excuse me, Samuel has, Solomon has 700 wives, 300 concubines. And in 1 Kings 11, it says that when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon goes on to do the unthinkable. Not only is he not thankful and appreciative of the Lord and worshiping the Lord for all that he has done, but he goes on to build temples for these foreign gods so that his foreign wives can go and worship these foreign gods in Judah. And it says this in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, the Davidic covenant that we just read, David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. 
However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, which is the tribe of Judah, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, he was one of the royal house in Edom. The Lord, as promised, disciplined David's son Solomon for his transgressions, not only through Hadad, but through Rezin, and even through Jeroboam of Ephraim, one of his own officials. God brought discipline for the iniquity, as he said that he would, and yet he did not rip away his steadfast love from Solomon. The passage continues emphatically, to show that, that Solomon is only an a imperfect placeholder and a partial fulfillment of this Davidic covenant and this promise of a king. Verse 16, and your house, the Davidic dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Twice in this one verse, three times in four verses, it says, this king, this kingdom that is coming is an eternal kingdom that will go on forever. Very quickly, the people of Israel would have realized that Solomon was not the full fulfillment of this prophecy. And so the people of God waited and waited and waited. They waited for the descendant of David to come, the king to come that would reign forever, that would bring God's promise of peace. They waited for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, up to a thousand years, for God to deliver this descendant of David who would reign forever and bring the kingdom of God. And then finally, we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the New Testament. And it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Then in Matthew 12, as Matthew goes on, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And it says, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? The one that they've been waiting for for a thousand years? As Jesus' ministry continues, the wandering turns into proclamation. Matthew, Mark, Matthew 15, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Matthew 20, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then as King Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, in Matthew 21, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Yes, the Davidic covenant does find its partial fulfillment in Solomon, but it finds its final fulfillment, its full fulfillment in Jesus, the true son of David, who endured the discipline of God, not for his sins, but for my sins and for your sins by dying on the cross. And it was because of Jesus, the son of David, that God's steadfast love is promised to us and will never depart us. It is Jesus, the son of David, who has risen from the dead to live forever and for always as king over the kingdom of God. And it is Jesus who has gone before us into heaven to prepare us a place of peace for all eternity. Jesus is the full fulfillment of this Davidic covenant, this Davidic promise, and yet there is more to come. 
let me end with this. Tomorrow is Reformation Day, which makes today Reformation Sunday. Uh, it is a celebration in the church uh, of, of the church refinding the word of God and the gospel of Christ and the gospel of grace. You see, for many, church, many years, the church started veering away from the scriptures, veering away from the gospel of grace. And they started to become works-based in their theology. If I build this, if I do this, if I pay this for God, then God will show me his favor. And so during, right before the Reformation, uh, there was selling of indulgences in which there would be a piece of paper from the church that they would go and they'd basically be selling you your salvation. They'd be selling you the favor of God for you or for a loved one. And so the famous saying at that time was, as soon as a coin in the bowl rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Ironically, the reason why the church was trying to get people to buy their salvation was so that they could use those funds to build a house for God, to build churches, to build cathedrals. And they figured if they built these houses for God, that God would be pleased with them. And yet God was faithful to his Davidic covenant. He brought back the Bible to the forefront, reminded of the gospel of grace of salvation, and that God is building his kingdom, not in temples or church buildings or tents, but he is building his eternal kingdom through his eternal king, Jesus Christ. You see, the New Testament tells us that it is through Jesus, the son of David, that we are being built up as a spiritual house, like, like living stones, that we, the church, are the temple of God so that God's spirit no longer resides in a crusty old tent or in massive stone temples, but that the spirit of God now resides within us through his Holy Spirit. Church, by the grace of God, we are the people of God. We are the house of God. We are the temple of the living God. Through the son of David, our eternal king, the promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are a God of grace because if you were not a God of grace, we would have no chance at all. Lord, we're not good enough to earn our way to you, to earn your favor. We, we mess up in thought and word and deed all the time. And so we are so thankful that is all of grace and that you have sent our King Jesus to come and to reign, to bring peace between us and you and then peace ultimately throughout the entire world. And we long for that day and we say, come Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.